Welcome to V'ger, please, a hateful voyage to the Delta Quadrant. My name is Joseph. I'm your co-host, Peter. So, Peter, did you, uh, in the in the early 2000s, did you ever listen to any songs by the artist known as Shakira? Uh, is that the Hips Don't Lie Lady? That is the Hips Don't Lie Lady. So no, you know I who the Hips Don't Lie so her, her, her here's what i know her, about her i think one of her dance moves got turned into world of warcraft character animations if i'm correct and that's about I, as much as i know about her and that her I, hips I, don't I, lie apparently yeah i i i think god i'm trying to remember it was like the it's like the night elf dance i don't know i think you're right about that but no night elf out dance was a, a french lady i think i don't know maybe shakira's french i, I have that's how little i know about shakira so the episode that we're reviewing this week, uh, it, it being uh, season four, uh, episode 14, Message in a Bottle, I could not get the early Shakira hit Genie in a Bottle out of my head the entire time uh, after realizing that was the title. And uh, I have resisted to this point having that as like the background music for this episode as we go. So I, I, I thought to- Genie in a Bottle was Britney Spears. Is it? Is that Britney Spears? Oh God, I gotta look this up. Yeah. Oh God, we're both wrong. It's Christina Aguilera. We are so bad as a pop culture <laughs> reference. I hope anybody who's joining us here on Vidra, please, a hateful trek through the uh, Delta Quadrant, is only here for Star Trek and not world history of aviation or horror movies. We got called out on. Uh, yeah, because we both screwed up. So you were meaning to, you said Scanners. Yeah. And I was thinking of a different movie, and the movie that you were actually intending to reference was Flatliners. Yes, but so fans I was thinking called of, us uh, out Prince on the, of Darkness, the but. yeah, fans called us out on that one on the uh, the Vitra Plea Trauma Support Group, accusing us of actually referencing Jacob's Ladder, but that person was wrong too, Nate. Because I was I was thinking about Flatliners, Kevin Bacon, I think. Yeah, yeah. That's the one where they're all medical students and they keep like killing themselves. Actually, there's a lot of big names in that. I think uh, some Baldwins were in there, too. You know, it's the 90s. Of course, Baldwins were in it. Was Ben Affleck in that? Sure. Why not? We 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 just pull stuff out of our ass. That's not true at all. So, yeah, he was in it. And, you know, uh, I think Schwarzenegger might have been in it too. Whatever. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, speaking of guest Shakira. stars, did you like? Did you like? <laughs> speaking of guest stars, did you like this one? Speaking of Nate, who was wrong about Scanners and Jacob's Ladder, as he put it, and I think this is the best way to sum up this episode. I can say without a doubt that this was my favorite thing that Andy Dick ever did. <laughs> <laughs> I it he. It's 1998. You need a comic actor who's used to working in television to come play an awkward robot on your TV show. I don't think you could do, you know, worse, better than Andy Dick, I guess. Certainly could do worse. I don't don't know if you could do worse. I I don't know, man. I got a real bad opinion of Andy Dick. I think anybody else in this role would have taken this episode higher in my book. And it's, it's already scored pretty well, uh, you know, to skip to the end a little bit, but I would have, I would have loved to see Tom green in this over Andy Dick. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh man. We're two years too early for that though. 
He was basically a 1999 to 2001 figure. And we're just a little too early for Tom Green, but Jesus. I would have rather see someone in this role who was not a star cameo. I would rather see some no-name actor. Uh, this is a very interesting episode. And it's, as you said at the end of uh, our last episode, when we were talking about this a little bit. This is a huge turning point for Voyager. This is going to, you know, it's been a while since we've really touched Metaplot stuff. And this. Yeah was a slam dunk on the 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 real Voyager long-term storyline. And to have dickhead Andy Dick in there detracting from that with all of his buffoonery. Just and I know it's gonna we're gonna have The Rock in here a little later and we already had Sarah Silverman, but damn man, like Voyager just fucking lay off the guest appearances. I know you're a network anchor and you're really trying to get the eyeballs on these things, no matter the cost, but what a fucking oh, please. Yeah. Like who the fuck is going to tune into this? piece? like, Oh boy, I'm a huge Andy Dick fan. You know, like the eight people watching news fucking radio. Are you kidding me? He's not a huge get. It's not like he's like the rock, you know? Like, that got people to watch that show. That's the only episode of Voyager my wife ever watched before we started doing this, was the one with The Rock in it. Well, all the more reason that they should have just left Andy Dick uh, off the table instead of dragging him into something I don't think he... And even reading through the Memory Alpha, man, like, the guy had never seen any... Oh, yeah, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, even though I never watch any of the episodes or a single episode of Voyager at all. Like, it just Hollywood fluff bullshit. My comment on this, uh, on Andy Dick's performance is he was fine. He was, this was a comedic episode for the most part, right? Somehow, was, which is crazy. Yeah, this was mostly EMH buffoonery hour. And it was, you know, amusing in that respect. I think that the fact that it was a comedy uh, episode undercut all of the cool nerd uh, CG, like continuity stuff that was going on a little bit. Because, you know, they're spending so much time doing awkward, you know, Frasier bits. But it's I don't think it undercut it so much that it was bad. I think this episode is is enjoyable. It's pretty good. And I think it's really important, as we've already both mentioned, that this is basically where the show pivots towards actually having an endgame. Like it has a a direction that it's going from this point forward. Um, As you mentioned, it has been years since they've done this in the continuity of the show, the last time that there was an episode where they even like touched on this possibility was cold fire. was false prophets. Yeah, was, that came after. Yeah, yeah. Uh, false prophets came after cold fire. I'm sorry, the deep the emotional last... scars left behind by false prophets make me forget <laughs> the little details like this. But I guess like you know, let's 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 call False Prophets what it is, which was a stupid ass bottle episode where they made the stakes too high. Cold Fire is probably the last like serious time the prospect of getting home has come up, and that was season two. So it's been two years in terms of like the show's actual run that they've raised the specter of going home, which kind of makes it more. Uh, it makes it a much bigger moment because yeah. they've restrained themselves to this point. But have they restrained themselves or are they just forgotten <laughs> the writer's room that like, oh, yeah, this is supposed to be a theme. I, it could be that they didn't necessarily know how they wanted to do it, but they needed to start like introducing the idea. 
But I will give all credit to uh, your friend and mine, Lisa Kink, who wrote this and managed to uh, fit in enough awkward sexual dialogue to make me sure you knew it was her. Yeah. Like, you know, I I couldn't help but smile when I opened the Emory Alpha and I saw her name on the teleplay. And I'm like, now all those awkward sex jokes make so much more sense. Why are these here? Why did we do this? Oh, kinky time. Absolutely. Start the episode off with uh, Balana, and she is venting to, I believe, Chakotay about how difficult it is to work with Seven of Nine. We have talked before about how Seven has stolen the mantle of being the difficult outsider that Balana used to inhabit. And to the show's credit, they have directly addressed this that Balana has self-recognize that she is now the authority that she at one time used to spurn and appreciates the difficulty that seven has in integrating into a new command structure and in an unfamiliar feeling. But uh, I still feel it's, it comes off in this a little bit hypocritical. Uh, and she's basically saying that, you know, seven is a real pain in the ass to work with. She doesn't ask permission. She doesn't uh, obey command structure. She just does it however she pleases. And that Balana thinks that she needs to see some discipline. And Chakotay, who once upon a time tried to jettison Seven of Nine out into the cold clutches of space, is just like, uh, hey, deal with it. You're, you're seeing your staff figure something out. I, I was struck dumb by the statement that Balana made, which was that somehow Seven of Nine has managed to harness incredibly powerful security technology. She locked a door. Remember, that was her big complaint. She locked the door to the astrometrics lab. Like, wait a second. Hold on. Someone call Tuvok and let him know that this kind of of incredible 29th century hypertech. (laughs) Like, a door was locked and apparently this confounded the chief engineer. I lost count on how many shuttlecraft we've lost and how many photon torpedoes have been used. But I do know that to this date, that marks two times there have been locked doors on Voyager. <laughs> the last time being the first time and that was Harry Kim locking the door so uh, he could enjoy his naughty nightmares with seven of nine in peace. It's an interesting it's an interesting conversation. If you ignore uh, Chakotay's hypocrisy about you know, hey, she's cool. Just get along with her. Like, I don't know where the soft spot for seven to nine came from. I personally would have liked to see Chakotay uh, carry a grudge longer than he has regarding these Borg that he directly defied uh, Janeway on. But, uh, you know, you've got this person who now exists completely outside of the command structure. Some of the Maquis that got brought into the crew, like Chakotay and Balana, had previous Starfleet experience. Chakotay, you know, was a full officer um, before he uh, went AWOL and, and joined the Maquis. Other people like Lon Suter, for example, I think it's very clear were never anywhere near Starfleet at any point until they put a uniform on along with uh, the rest of Chakotay's crew following the events of Caretaker Station. Like, yeah, you got Kess and Neelix who got picked up and never really got assimilated. Not (laughs) funny. Never got brought in. But, you know, why has Seven of Nine 
not been given the opportunity to join Starfleet, despite the fact, I'm sorry, the crew, the uniformed crew, despite the very high security authority she has, uh, her access to very sensitive stuff and, you know, a very direct line to Janeway when it comes to the decision-making process. So she exists completely as a outside consultant with very high authority and autonomy. Uh, they need her to get home. Chakotay says, what do you want me to do? Lock her in a brig? Like, we're not going to do that. How do you start to wrestle someone like this back in? You know, this is a pretty big leadership hurdle as far as discipline goes on the, on a small ship. She's breaking all the rules and there's no, uh, there's no, repercussions and she's a fucking borg like i think that's a real black eye for janeway it's not like a dolby punch can solve this problem either like you know when the maquis crew members were contemplating that you know in the end they don't actually have to do anything you know like they don't actually have to play by the rules and chakotay was like well if you're not going to play by the rules i'm going to institute some non-rules level correction to make you want to and it was hokey, but at least there was a reason, right? There isn't a, really a threat they can lay down for Seven of Nine that is going to be effective. She doesn't fear anything. She doesn't really want to do anything but work, right? So what do you do to stop her? And uh, I agree with you that it's kind of like a difficult situation to get through. And the fact that Chakotay's just like, hey, just be the adult, be the senior officer and, and deal with it uh, is kind of maddening from a supervision perspective and of course Balan doesn't help her case be like well if she does this again you, you know i might throw a cup at her ankle you know, i'm not responsible for what i do which you know gives chakotay the opening to be like you know buck up you're the you're the you're the adult in the room so act like it but she you know Balan is that wrong like this is a, a problem that probably goes beyond her capacity to deal with this requires the highest levels of command authority to figure out what the fuck seven of nine's limitations are and if they're not going to put her in a uniform for whatever reason, the same reason that they don't have Neelix in one. Yeah, ratings, then, because, then, you know, the viewers at home just love looking at Neelix's butt and all those tight uniform uh, outfits. Listen, I need, I need to see my discount African King drapes, mm-hmm. and I need to see them every week. Although we don't really see them this week, except very briefly. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, it's it's a bigger problem and it's deserving, I think, of more attention that they can give in this episode. But really, you know, all of the B, I could call this the C plot, the seven of nine learning to say thank you and uh, and please. Which I thought we already covered, too. And that's that's another complaint I have. Like we retread the same ground and seven learns the same lessons. So, I mean, you know, no one's going to completely change over the course of one incident. But like we've already been here. We've already done this. I don't need more screen time for it. So fortunately, we don't spend much screen time on it because uh, Seven of Nine uh, beckons the captain and, the, and Chakotay to come to Astrometrics. Real quick, before we move off of this, we haven't talked about it in a while. I still think that the most interesting things that happen in the majority of these Voyager episodes happen within the first five minutes. Uh, we talked about it heavily with the, um, what was the Neelix Loses His Faith episode? Mortal Coil. Yes. I love the slice of life slice of life stuff that Voyager does. And I think that's where it lives for the most part in these episodes is the pre-credit stuff where you just what's life around the ship? What are the hardships these guys are dealing with that aren't, you know, 
subspace ruptures and, and warp core breaches. Uh, I, I think they do more with the, the five minutes uh, on the front end than the rest of the show really does to, to draw you into caring about these people. The discussion they end up having uh, at the After Matches Lab is that Seven of Nine has found a Starfleet vessel. They use that as their tease before they cut to uh, the opening credits. And uh, she reveals that they she has found the Starfleet vessel because it just so happens that there's apparently a huge uh, network of subspace relays that from the map that they show covers half the fucking galaxy. Like they, they show the map of like all the stations that she's mapped. And it's 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 close to expanding across half the the galaxy, the entire Delta Quadrant through the Beta Quadrant into the Alpha Quadrant. And uh, apparently uh, she was able to map the this this network and be able to get sensor readings from from everything on it uh, with enough speed that she could, in fact, see that there is a Federation ship that is passing essentially the farthest terminus of the network that's still at the edge of the alpha quadrant. I thought so, this was really cool. I thought it was a great moment of, of science fiction. Uh, and we'll later come to find out that this network isn't abandoned as they initially thought. Did you play final unity on the PC? Final unity. It was a star Trek game, a final unity. Oh, the, the TNG game. Yes, 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 yes I did. I always like when star Trek deals with like old, ancient species that were technologically advanced and comes across like still functioning technology. I, I don't know why it's, it's it's kind of the sci-fi fantasy element I like. So them discovering this and like you said, this huge spanning network, nothing that we've ever seen the likes of in TNG or most of the other uh, properties I thought was a really cool moment. And, you know, this is a far reaching effect contact potential contact with federation back home and the alpha quadrant like it was just fucking cool and and it really made the new set piece and all that they've done with astrometrics really pay off in a big way for me yeah the first of all it doesn't surprise me that you're into that since we're both fans of mass effect which apparently yes. the, entire, the entire series is about so i get you and i also like the idea of you know the galaxy is very lived in it's billions of years old something like this could exist that has was built a long time ago and is suddenly quite useful to, you know, someone passing by that can make, you know, use of the, of the remaining bones of what's there. It's a neat idea. And also gives you the, this opening, right. Of some kind of contact with the alpha quadrant so that you can move that part of the plot forward. So uh, it also gives you a great premise for why they make the choice that they make. Because they try to establish communication with the ship. It doesn't work and they realize that they need to send a stronger signal. But they have a very compressed amount of time. Uh, like this, when Seven of Nine calls them up, they say they've got you know a little over an hour. By the time they're like figuring out that their first method isn't going to work, they're down to a matter of minutes. And so a lot of the time we complain of why did you just do that, right? Like Ram last, last episode with Chakotay the Dream Warrior, right? Like... <laughs> There's no reason to make this choice. You've not been confronted with anything that forces you to go down this road yet. Yet, this is the first thing you're going to choose to do, right? This is a much better framing device because this says, 
we're going to make this choice because we don't have enough time. It's the first thing that came to mind, and it seems like it would work. And this is a big enough bet that we're going to bet something big on it, right? This is our chance to get a message home. Obviously, the doctor is incredibly important to the ship, but at the same time, so is getting the fuck home and telling our boys back home that we're still out here so they can help us. So, all right, I'm going to push my chips to the middle of the table, and I'm going to see if this bet, you know, if this pays off or not. I get it. I don't have a complaint with that that construction, and uh, they very quickly get the doctor How to rare. astrometrics. How rare for us to say those words. I don't have a problem <laughs> with the yeah, way they deployed it is really rare. this plot device. I, I, until we get into the weird kinky stuff, I would have never thought that one of the core Voyager writing team members was behind this because of how beautifully they pulled off big stakes with a time crunch and and not ramrodding a series of events down my throats that makes no fucking sense whatsoever. They get the doctor to astrometrics. They brief him on the situation very quickly and they convince him like it, it's it's now or never and you're the only one that can do it because you're a fully functional holographic program and you can explain everything to everyone. Like I can't send, you know, uh, one of the fucking sex bots. <laughs> They're not going to be any help, right? They're not going to do anything. You can actually, you know, talk to people and tell them what we've been through. So he agrees, and they beam him onto the ship. And this is where we see the f- the first of like several extremely good uh, CG effects. Did you notice when they send his stream out, and they they actually consult him? Like that's. Another interesting part to this is that yeah they get his, they get his uh, permission yeah and that is a big growth point I think for Janeway who still from time to time has not really accepted him as a person uh, she doesn't order him off because it's you know it's a it's a pretty big chance for failure on this you know he just might be lost in the winds and there it goes uh, but did you notice when they beam him off that he's wearing his um, mobile emitter and that that mobile emitter just transports off into the stream with him yeah it was a bit of a plot of kind of props miss it should have dropped to the ground yeah it's all right it's not important to the to the episode no but the uh the cg effects uh i don't know what the budget for this episode was but they they pull out all the stops i mean you've got new character i'm sorry you've got new um ship models in play you've got some some very strong combat scenes uh you've got several what look like built from scratch set pieces that are pretty, although I think I did read something in the um, memory alpha that the Prometheus bridge was a redressed enterprise E bridge. Uh, apparently uh, that's incorrect. It was the redressed uh, movie enterprise. So not the E, but the, uh, the actual, I think motion picture, like the, from the Cardassian hallways were from that too. And I think that's much more likely than, uh, it being the E because it's too small. It's too small to be a redress of the E bridge. The so E-bridge you're telling me that they just have the the Star Trek motion picture bridge sets just laying around? Yeah, I mean, they box all that up and keep it, man, so they don't have to redo it. You know, like, that's why they do that. And it's the right size to be. Uh, We're talking like undiscovered country Enterprise A. Probably. Uh Probably, yeah. Hmm. Regardless, it's it's new stuff all over the place. This is as far as Voyager goes. Our first um, 
chance to see something non-Delta Quadrant, to see some some Starfleet advancements. Um, I, I think it starts by giving us an overview of the outside of the Prometheus, which is the ship that's passing next to this, uh, and I think it's called the Hyren Empire um, sensor relay. Is this a ship that's really featured heavily in uh, Deep Space Nine at all? No. So this is its only appearance on screen uh, in any Trek. Uh, it we see on the outside shot of the Prometheus it has an NX uh, prefix, so you know it's it's you already know it's experimental, or it's the first of its class. Yeah the the whole thing is like super overlit. It's super white, super surgical, so it has a different look than a lot of other Federation ships. And uh, not only is is the first time, obviously, this gets rendered in CG. This is the first time uh, Diderik's class Warbirds get uh, rendered in CG. Believe it or not, they had to they had to do it for this episode. They ended up using it after this in DS Nine, but this was the first time they ever had to do that. So there's a lot of stuff they had to do to make this work. There's a really cool like space battle later. Where you know Federation ships are just throwing down. You get to see an Akira class ship. You get to see a Defiant class ship. Two Defiance. I thought so, that was interesting too. I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but whatever. Uh, so I, I thought that was like a big deal. That was that the Defiant was a one-off. It was a dirty secret. It had the cloak. It was built purely for war, and it was kind of like, uh, you know, the Federation's dirty little secret. Seeing two of them here as part of this task force to hunt this uh, Prometheus down. Uh, I don't want to say jarring, but it was very unexpected. Well, this is a, probably a good time to discuss the context of this episode in Trek's timeline, because it does come into play in this episode. So this is happening during uh, late late fifth, early sixth season of DS9. I'm not sure exactly which, but uh, you know what? I could probably tell you right here. Uh, looks like, yeah, sixth season of DS9. So they're in the middle of the of the dominion war at this time so they are in the middle of a pitched battle against a species from the gamma quadrant called the founders that lead this multi-space uh, multi-species uh empire called the dominion and they're trying to conquer the alpha quadrant and it is full-scale war it's a big deal there's a lot of really cool stuff that happens with that that is far beyond our capacity to talk about. But what's most important is that the Federation got the Defiant out of mothballs because they were starting to get confronted by them years prior. And the indication that was given was that they were doing that because they needed to beef up, see if the ship would work, and that if if Cisco could make it work in service to him so they could build more of them. And as DS9 went on, you started to see the Defiant class actually like there's more of them so that isn't a that that wouldn't be a i think a big shocker to someone who saw this who was watching a lot of trek at the time like they built that into to ds9 that like the federation is building a lot of warships and also first contact happened right you saw a lot of the more combat capable federation vessels in that too in fact you see one of them in here it's the akira class ship yeah that was all part of the borg defense initiative that really in We've gone over this heavily in Scorpion about what a big deal the Borg was, how the Borg changed the DNA of Starfleet and put it back into a military role, which I think let them hit the Dominion War uh, a lot better footing than it would have had it not encountered the Borg earlier. But insofar as our relationship to Deep Space Nine, if if this is the first time we've seen the Derridix Warbirds in CGI, 
Does that mean that Romulans were not heavily featured in Deep Space Nine up to this point? Yes, and that actually changes shortly after this episode. So this episode happens right before probably the most pivotal episode of DS9, which is in the Pale Moonlight, which is when uh, Cisco has to get the Romulans to get involved with the war. So this happens canonically like in that season, but before that episode occurs. So this is when the Romulans were trying to still play both sides, which is why obviously they're involved in this episode in the way that they are and why their Romulans haven't been featured up to this point in, in the fight itself. That's my other question to you, because I know that there's floating around somewhere in Voyager Romulan silliness with them doing stuff that's completely doesn't make sense with, with their global agendas. And I wasn't sure if this hijacking the ship was some tell Shi'ar rogue faction or if this was an actual Romulan said it condoned black ops mission or not black ops but a you know a, an authorized theft mission yeah the the indication is that a uh, leading up to this point is that the Romulans are basically trying to do their Romulan thing which is oh so these uh these Dominion guys are showing up and they're fucking up the Federation and they're fucking up the Klingons that seems good for us right so uh, we don't trust them, but at the same time, we're going to try and like position ourselves. So we're going to take advantage of the situation. And the thrust of what happens in DS9 is that Cisco has to convince the Romulans that like as soon as they're done with us, they're coming for you. All right. Well, don't, so don't talk too much about you, that. I, you need to get on the train. Get around to it. There's a lot going on that goes on with that. But anyway, when when the EMH Mark II says long story, that's the story. I gave it. So uh, EMH1, Picardo materializes in the sick bay and this is intentional uh by the voyager crew because they know that there is hollow emitters in the sick bay and that they're going to take advantage of existing technology to let him appear and uh emh pops in looks around it's a very conceptual sick bay like you said it's like super well lit and white and swoopy arches everywhere and he starts kind of poking around and trying to call for help and finds that the security features are pretty heavily locked down on this. And I like the scene where he totally walks by the guy dying out in the hallway and doesn't realize it until a couple seconds later. And then he gets in close and we see uh, the new Starfleet uniform designs and this dude's laying on the floor and he has burnt the fuck up. And I'll tell you what, man, Voyager, I again, I can't speak to DS9 because I never watched it, but like, I don't think that with the exception of uh, the conspiracy episode of next gen where they blow up uh the alien king what, what the hell was his name <laughs> redeker yeah they, yeah they explode his head yeah. yeah i can't i'm blanking on that guy's name but like they never really got that gruesome and just time and time again voyager is proving that it is willing to go there with uh special effects score from tuvok getting his head microwave to people being hung from the ceiling bleeding out of their face and I think a couple episodes again, uh, Alexia, Neelix's terrifying sister, having her skin burned off. Um, someone on that special effects team is handy with the burns. Yeah, the makeup team is definitely uh, superior for Voyager. We'll grant them that. Hey, they got an Emmy for it. So, you know, we got to got to recognize game, recognize game. Uh as you note, the doctor eventually notices the uh, dying crew member on the floor and the and the dead crew member first and then the dying one and finds out that the ship has been taken by Romulans. And 
as a in, interesting design note, as you saw, uh, everyone in the Alpha Quadrant at Starfleet is wearing the first contact uniform, which is the case on DS9 at this point. They switched over to them. And it's kind of a neat visual marker because from this point forward, when we see scenes on Voyager where the people are from the Alpha Quadrant or the scenes are occurring in the Alpha Quadrant, they're wearing the first contact uniforms. And Voyager never switches to them. I always thought that was a neat kind of thing that they did, that they kept that separate. Yeah, the uniforms are expensive. Voyager's apart. <laughs> yeah, don't redo those. Get your, you want to get your yeah, use out of all those uh, old black jumpsuits. Yeah, we made so many, damn many of them. We might as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the doctor tries to assess his situation. He finds out he's on this ship called the Prometheus, that it is experimental, that Romulans have hijacked it. And he is attempting to figure out options of what he could do. While this is occurring, the Romulans actually get jumped by a Nebula-class ship. And uh, we get to see its rad multi-vector assault mode. Rad. Let's talk about that. (laughs) If you ever had a problem with the fact that Voyager had warp pylons that move up and down. Boy, have I got a ship for you. Not only does this ship split into three different ships. Not only does this ship go at warp 9.9. But it does the separation at warp. (laughs) Did you notice that? It's it's a funny episode because it's it's such an important turning point. Yet I feel like it's this self-contained story of what if we just tell whatever Alpha Quadrant Starfleet story we want. And none of it matters because this is a ship in a bottle. I'm sorry. Yeah. Story in a bottle uh, Voyager and, you know, nothing sticks around and lingers. So it's just any kooky thing that can or might happen does happen. And, and as you pointed out, yeah, a ship flying warp 9.9 splits into, was it four different vehicles or is it three vehicles? It's three vehicles. And what I thought was just the most hilarious part of it it was just so adorable if you look at the screenshots of it separated so they tried to design it in a way that made it look like all three parts could still go to warp right there's even like little warp nacelles that like pop out yeah there's like tiny little warp nacelles that pop out on the top portion literally there's like like a little warp nacelle that comes out of like where the bridge is supposed to be it's like little it's 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 a quaint warp nacelle it's so goofy I mean, could this ship not could have been just enough of a badass that it didn't need this shit to happen? Like, couldn't have just, you know, had really good phasers and, you know, phaser cannons and, you know, quantum torpedoes and just could fuck everything up. It didn't have to transform go to fucking Vol- <laughs> it didn't have to go to Voltron mode. Which part forms the head? Yeah. Like, it, ugh. it's dumb. But OK, whatever. So, so that's your official ruling, because that's mine is that multi vector assault mode which they say like 16 times through the episode is stupid. I also like that the computer will talk about multi-vector assault mode, but not detail what multi-vector assault mode is. And I'm like, who's setting up these security permissions? Because the name multi-vector assault mode seems like a pretty big giveaway for a project that you don't want unauthorized people to know anything more about. Um, It splits up. It fucks up the nebula, something fierce, which if you know your Trek, Starfleet ship battle records is not hard to do. Nebulas suck. They always blow up. Uh, But in the process, something goes wrong on the bridge and these 
Romulans who are holding down the fort. One of them doesn't know how life is in Starfleet. And he's sitting at his workstation a little too close. (laughs) And my favorite thing in the whole episode happens. And that's a monitor blows up (laughs) like they do and sends this dude flying to the floor. Although he lucks out pretty big. And we see that uh, the super advanced Prometheus class, one of its best features is that when the computer you're working on blows up in your face, it doesn't outright kill you. I mean, that's a real upgrade. Huge. That's a technological huge. innovation. Huge. You thought huge. you thought the sad sacks being able to like beam people light years away was a big deal? No. Nah, no. Nah, I can make computers that don't kill me when I use them now. That is really, <laughs> that's super good. Uh, they get uh, this guy down the sick bay and then the doctor like comically hides behind like a desk and then, you know, just pops up and, and does his, oh, I'm just an EMH. I'm going to treat this guy. He has a burn and I need to operate and do all this stuff to uh, vamp for time. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually the officer that brought him down is like, uh, fine, just report to me when you're fucking done, I guess, which seems very un-Romulan-like un- uh, 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 of like, oh, strange technology. I don't I'm totally just going to trust it with this guy's life and just fuck off. I would like, just assume assume the the fucking Romulans and all their treason and treachery, as I've been led to believe through the Star Trek CCG collectible card game that Decipher made that she would have just slit the dude's throat there and mercy killed him. Um, the doctor's speech about it doesn't matter what uniform you're wearing, your sentient life that's injured. My obligation is to help. Is that true? Uh, we know it's not true. We've seen the doctor uh, mastermind a psychotic terrorist to murder multiple people. Sure. I'm talking about and and we'll get to that here because like, oh, I don't know what to do. It's like, dude, you, you totally know what to do. Like you are the specialist on how to retake hijacked ships. There's nobody yeah. more qualified in all of Voyager's fucking crew compliment especially Tuvok that can do this job better than how you're going to be able to do it. No, I mean, uh, an, an off the shelf EMH, the, the line he gives about, I will help regardless of uniform, regardless of your feelings towards Starfleet and the Federation. Like would, do you think the, 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 I don't know if this is dominion War Starfleet would program, uh, their EMHs to heal, wounded enemy combatants i think we know it's not true because the emh mark ii literally says you know he doesn't want to operate on and assist the uh the the wounded uh romulan in front of him like in this scene mm. you know like the the before they go to like commando up the emh is like save this guy's life and the emh2 doesn't want to and the emh1 goes no, no you have a patient we're fi- we're fixing this guy first like that's what's up. So speaking of EMH two, uh, sl- shortly after this <laughs> wounded, slutly after. I'm sorry. You said slut, and I just. I'm sure Andy. Just, Andy Dick. Dick Andy. Uh, Andy slut. Dick being a slut. Yeah. We'll go know, on record as slut shaming Andy Dick. Um, okay, I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable <laughs> with that. Well, you're the one who's wading around on Twitter, so batten down the hatches. Uh, <laughs> shortly after the Romulan sub commander dumps off, uh, the guy who took the console to the face, uh, Picardo activates the EMH and we get treated to the EMH Mark II, which is, uh, the aforementioned Andy Dick 
who uh, proceeds to start laying some sick burns on Picardo, talking about his beady eyes and his terrible bedside manner, and just basically says, I'm your replacement upgrade. Uh, but we find out that this guy is also a prototype who was only installed onto the ship two weeks previous, has not been field tested, and uh, has a couple bugs which will come to rear their head later on. Uh, he is a total coward. He wants nothing to do with any talk of retaking the ship. And we, in fact, find out that Federation protocol is that uh, in the event of a occupation by a hostile force, the EMH is to turn itself off and wait for rescue. And I thought that in of itself was very interesting. You remember the doctor being able to turn himself off was like on his wish list of things to be uh, fixed once he started to become a permanent fixture around the place prior to that. If people didn't turn him off when they left sickbay, he was just stuck sitting around. EMH Mark II is able to turn himself off at will. So there was a plot line on DS9 about Zimmerman, the programmer. Uh, don't go too deep Obviously. on it since we haven't watched, I haven't watched it. I, I won't, but it's just it gives context that uh, Zimmerman, who was played by Bacardo, uh, was trying to make a EMH Mark II. And so the idea that this EMH Mark II has been created is, you know, in continuity with what they've established. I'm noting that because I think it's neat that they've been establishing upgrading the EMH and then they did. And then just as you just went through, there's a whole bunch of upgrades that have been done to this EMH. And so Andy Dick plays the role like a newborn replicant, you know, like he is he is a robot that knows how to doctor, but not how to do anything else. And he has like all this anxiety about the fact he doesn't know how to do anything else. Uh, it's fine. He's fine. Picardo is way funnier. Like this from this point forward, it's basically a comedy of errors, like buffoonery episode some slapstick where some interesting real quick. Uh, they start like slapping each other around or like grabbing each other. And they have like a little cat fight almost. And I thought. We know that the doctor can dodge punches from other hologram from from like regular people, but if they're both holograms being emitted off the same emitter, can they no longer like phase away out of each other's grasp? Picardo's comic timing throughout the rest of this episode on basically all this interaction with Andy Dick is phenomenal. Apparently, he like wrote some of the comedy lines. I I, I actually laughed out loud at the uh, at the point later on when. Uh, the Federation has shown up to try and stop the theft. And there's this big fight they get into with the Romulans and they're firing on the Prometheus. And, uh, and he, you know, the EMH Mark II says they probably, they, they probably think they're Romulans still on board. <laughs> and then Picardo, like the EMH wheels around and goes, they're right. <laughs> like They're still here. <laughs> it's, it's really a good episode for him to show that he has the chops for, good comic timing and acting. It makes the episode enjoyable. Absolutely. Uh, uh, the, the whole point of the episode at this point is, is essentially the EMH trying to buck up his, his younger, uh, newer, uh, counterpart to help him retake the ship. And he actually does go through, like I've lived a life, you know, I've done things. I've, you know, dealt with time travel. I've, you know, dealt with, uh, armed incursions into the ship before, like, like 16 times. Come on. <laughs> You know, you got to do this with me. I've even fucked. Mm. <laughs> That's... Lisa King, shout so, out. Yes. Apparently, this is specifically a reference to Dr. Pell. Is it? It is in the memory alpha. 
that's because what Picard- he also had a hollow wife in uh, in the the super racist. <laughs> getting bulky with it. Nah, 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 yeah, nah, nah, getting nah. bulky with it. Uh, you know, I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that he might have put it in. Well, um, uh, he was apparently Picardo was told that that line was a reference specifically to Dr. Pell, that he he boinked Dr. Pell back in season two. So there you have it. Even more injustice that they left that poor, poor woman behind to deal with her Nazi, uh, you know, black plague. Infested. Weak as shit. Weak um, as shit. Uh, but uh, eventually he does convince the EMH Mark II to assist him. And they basically get the idea to gas the whole ship with uh, a neurotoxin. I want to I want to frame what we're talking about here, because the one of the worst points of continuity. Is that we continue to see the doctor thrust into this role of like, I don't know how to handle it. And like half the episodes are the doctor being like, I don't know what to do with, you know, hostile, aggressive forces. And then the other half is like. Holograms are super dangerous and they can fuck people up with no shits to give and reach through people and grab their heart and squeeze like uh, what was that crazy ass episode with uh, the dude from. Oh, Alien. yeah. With the serial killer janitor. Uh, yeah. Hologram. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You saw what he did to the people in there. You could. And now he doesn't have to worry about the mobile hologram emitter. I mean, every that was another cool part of this Prometheus is. All of the ship has hollow meters. They can freely walk wherever they want. They can go in any Jeffrey's tube they want. Well, you can walk around and strangle people from the inside out. You've got full access to the ship. You've studied under the likes of Lon Suter, who guided you directly through what to do in this uh, instance. And as we just established in whatever the stupid Freddy Krueger episode, what was it? The Night Terror. Was it Night Terror? Is what that was called? Where the, we would Chicote oh, Dream oh, yeah, Warrior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Chicote Dream Warrior. Right, right. Remember how the EMH was willing to shoot a fucking photon torpedo to the surface and genocide an entire race? Like, okay, now you've got some asshole Romulans hijacking Federation property, like the fourth prime directive for Robocop, you know, protect OCP. <laughs> well, what are we going to do? Uh, oh, oh, I just discovered a new directive. Let me just. <laughs> Go Protect around Federation and... property. Time to uh, murder these dudes. There's how many people? Seven people on the bridge. Well, I guess I'll just go strangle them with their own assholes. Give me a minute. I'll be back. Let me let me transform into a fucking Nosikin or some terrible Klingon mythological beast. Um, I I get no that they deal. can't. They they don't do that because they want to have the you know. The slapstick humor of uh, those two reconciling their differences. Sure. But I'm just saying, for the record, we have laid a breadcrumb trail that ultimately ends at holograms are the best murderers. And the EMH has learned from the best flesh bag murderer and just give this man a pipe and let him sort him out. Let God sort him out. (laughs) There's going to be a lot of Romulans going to the great forest after this episode. I just love the idea of him activating the Mark II, explain the situation, and then just, you know, explains, listen, I've learned from the very best in these kinds of situations how to handle it. You told me that there's hollow emitters at every deck, so we're going to handle this the 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 only way I know how. It turns to the replicator <laughs> and say, computer, two pipes. <laughs> and he's like, hands one to this guy. It's like, it is time that you learn the true martial prowess. 
that Lon Suter passed to me. <laughs> I thought when you said he, he'll replicate two pipes, it's because uh, the EMH is a ranger and he can dual wield with uh, <laughs> dual wield pipes. favorite enemy ship invader. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, uh, I will. I will say that the B plot that we see back on Voyager uh, is a piece of continuity that I've been waiting for you to see because it goes to some of the complaints that you're kind of alluding to now about holograms kind of being perfect at everything is that they take time to show how difficult it is to like create a complex hologram. Uh, they don't spend, I don't think enough time on it. They, they didn't have really a lot of time to play with this idea. Oh, you're talking um, about back on Voyager. Yeah. So the idea here is Tom, you know, doesn't want to be a doctor. He wants to fly the ship. So he tries to convince his good buddy, Harry to make a new hologram to be the doctor in his place. And uh, turns out, shit is hard and uh you know this is this is probably why we don't see a whole bunch of uh, holographic murder bots it's that programming these could be kind of delicate you know especially Since when is harry a hologram expert as they proclaim like uh, he's got his norwegian volleyball swimsuit team or whatever to his credit but we we've always been kind of led to believe that tom's been the real hot shot when it comes to hologram engineering and i think there's an important difference here. Like making some hologram ninjas just go around and cut people's heads off is basic and easy. It's it's actual functional thinking, critically thinking, dynamically adapting holograms like the doctor who have this huge medical database and they're able to act on it within a personality. Um, and yes, I have harped on this before that you have one doctor in the entire ship and the only thing even closely resembling a nurse uh, is also your ace pilot. And before that, your your best candidate was a demigod, Kess, who has flown away <laughs> to, I don't know, go battle Frieza on Namek or whatever. Um, <laughs> this is a conundrum that the captain should have been addressing a long time ago, but I'll take what I can get. And, and Harry and Tom facing it down now is appreciated. And I think memory said something uh, that they're going to expand on this a little later, but this has been a long, long time coming. I personally think it should have been regular crew members in holodeck college learning about this stuff, but whatever. It's about time we start asking why aren't there other doctors on the ship? There's an Ohio shout out somewhere in this area, too. I've, I've got it written down on my notes. Do you remember? Oh, where yeah, that came yeah, from? yeah, yeah. That was because uh, Stevie noticed that, too. Chakotay has a a relative that lives in Ohio. And, and so they had that whole conversation where they're talking about, like, writing letters home because they're 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 still stuck on this this idea that they're going to be able to basically communicate with with, uh, you know, Starfleet. So uh, they're preparing things that they can send should some kind of communication line be established. And that's where the Ohio shadow comes in. It's apparently that in the 24th century, uh, Ohio is still a thing. So, you know what? Good job. Good job, Ohio. We made it. Yeah. We did it. We're still probably, you know, slinging that Cincinnati chili sludge all over the place <laughs> and trying to convince people it's good by the way it is. And, uh, you know, this is the second Ohio shout out because I would say the first one was, Kent State, uh, yeah, no, I was going to say back in the Raven with, uh, the Cleveland Bromar, but <laughs> <laughs> I 
No, Kent uh, State got name checked. That's a that's a school in Cleveland. So there you it's go. It's funny you mentioned Stevie picking up on the Ohio thing because as this episode's going on, my wife's doing laundry and walking in and out of the living room where I'm watching this. And she stops. And my wife's not like a computer programmer or anything, you know, but she's also a millennial and, and she knows her way around a computer. And she's just like, why is this such a big deal about the doctor? Like if he's a if he's a hologram, like why can't they just copy him and paste him and, and do this again? And I'm like, dude, welcome to like some big fucking gripes that we've had on the show. Like I I can't even get into the fucking discussion with us on you because it's going to be like six hours. And she's like, like, how does this not dawn on the writers? Like I'm in here asking you like, what's, what's a Delta quadrant. Like that's how invested I am in this. That I, I don't even know what, what, what a Delta quadrant is, but like, even I know that you can just back up a program if it goes bad. And I'm like, yeah, you just got to swallow that pill and keep going. If you want to be on the Voyager, the fucking- it's such a big hole. Like, I get that they want to show it's hard to program something from scratch, and they do. Mm-hmm. And I get that it would be difficult. It's a lot of variables to balance, take a lot of time. That's what they're showing. It's not something easy to do. But what they don't explain is what is the limitation on creating a backup for the doctor, right? Like, the just just backing up an instance, you know, like you back up your like an image of your hard drive and, you know, you restore from that point if you have to. And what's the real motherfucker? Peter, is that there's going to be a day where we're going to watch an episode and the words EMH backup module are going to be said. Yeah, I see. I see your face right now. I see it. I see the pain on your face. And yes, I let the subdermal communicator thing go. (laughs) You know, that thing that like fixes 99 out of 100 problems Voyager encounters. Don't don't tell me EMH backup module. It was hard enough to even believe that there was a fucking self-diagnostic file. Yes, those are words that are said. It is in service to the best episode of Voyager. So take that for what you will. But those are words that are said. So, yeah, good script humor in this. Uh, Andy Dick, and that's why I say this is the best thing I've ever seen with Andy Dick. It could have been anybody in this role. Like you said, I think that the real comedic talent in all of this is Robert Picardo. I think Andy Dick just plays along well enough. Like even him when uh, they they get the poison knockout gas to to knock all the Romulans out. EMH one is trying to hand the canisters to EMH two while he's getting in the Jeffries tube and like the EMH two not knowing the right way to crawl into a hallway. I thought was pretty funny. You could have had anybody there. Andy Dick didn't bring some stroke of genius. You know, you, you got uh, you got Leonardo da Vinci, right? Being portrayed by John Reese Davy, a complete trash role that somehow he pulls out of the gutter mostly. Uh, and this is the exact opposite. It could have been it could have been smoldering catcher playing uh, EMH Mark II, and we would have gotten the same good humor beat. And it's because Picardo lugs this thing around on his back. Uh, back on Voyager, in addition to the conundrum about what are we going to do if the Doctor's lost forever, uh, we find out that the ancient abandoned alien network relay is in fact not abandoned, and that these yeah. Hiron dudes, Hirogen, uh, Hirogen, have clued into the fact that someone's pirating a signal, pulling a little hackers 
on their ass and they're like, look, step the fuck off. This is ours. You leave it alone. And uh, now Voyager has a time crunch because they're not going to be able to keep waiting around for the doctor to make contact. And, and things start looking pretty grim. The Herogen end up being a pretty big player. Believe it or not, in the show as a recurring antagonist. So this is kind of like a taste. We get to know a lot more about them next episode, actually. But I like when they hint this stuff. They did the same thing with the Kremen. Yeah, they they kind of put out there that, you know, this is going to have a consequence and it definitely does. And uh, the the plan to retake the ship isn't going super well because Doctor gets caught on the bridge trying to open up environmental controls for the uh, Mark II to gas the ship. He gets captured. They're going to interrogate him. But that's when we find out that the Mark II is successful in gassing the ship anyway by basically tricking it into thinking that there was some kind of like biohazard attack ship wide to have it open up all of the environmental controls for it to manipulate and gas everybody. And uh, they have to basically slapstick their way through learning how to fly the ship so they can uh, stop it from going into Romulan space and then help the Federation reclaim it from the Derek's class warbirds that have come to, you know, take it the fuck back over. It's fine. It all works out in the end. The, uh, the doctor succeeds. Uh, he gets a few, uh, fun zingers in, in the process. And sure enough, uh, the Federation drives the, uh, Romulans back after they've successfully, you know, blown up one of the warbirds using the multi-vector assault mode, thus killing thousands of Romulans. You know, the two the two Ooh. EMHs do that. Yeah, little little noopsie on that whole Hippocratic oath. Uh, but it's it's cool. It's fine. You know, they didn't finish a face, so it's totally okay. The Herogen get two scenes. In. So the first is a warning to back the fuck off. The second one, he's like, listen, I'm shutting this. I'm shutting this uh, this circus down for good. No and- more free HBO for you, sir. <laughs> you can't share these Netflix passwords forever. We're we're cracking down. Uh, Janeway's trying her diplomacy thing, and and all of a sudden the guy's like, "You got three sec," and he like reels back, and there's like some whack ass force lightning that flies out of his console, and like pokes him in the chest and the dude flies back it looks so hokey and bad but man i thought it was fucking hilarious i had a real good laugh and it's seven to nine she's like uh yeah your diplomacy wasn't working so i administered a mild electric shock and janeway's like oh okay and uh it kind of gets her like some brownie points with balana balana's like yeah nice i like it but it's like looking at the the big picture stuff on seven to nine you got the captain trying to use diplomacy on what will, as you're saying, become a, a big deal alien race. And you got seven just fucking insubordinately assaulting these guys with their own technology. And and Jamie just kind of laughs it off. But it goes right back to that earlier thing about her insubordination. And the only time you really see Janeway crack the whip other than when people are kissing in the hallway is when people take away her ability to diplomacy a situation. That's when she gets like real cranky, right? Uh, so I thought this was a bad character moment for Janeway just looking the other way about what's going on here. But it is big stakes. Yeah. Yeah. Both she and Chakotay are uncharacteristically passive in this episode, I'll say. 
but whatever. It's a minor complaint, you know, so that other characters could kind of get out there and do shit. I get it. Like sometimes you can't have them raining on everyone's parade. Uh, but uh, they get their their link back, and ultimately they get a holographic transmission back. The Doctor returns to the ship and lays the big factoid, the big revelation on him, and says, I talked to Starfleet Command, set the record straight that we're alive. I've told them what we've been through. We got declared dead, what, 14 months ago, I think. Yeah, yeah. So beginning of season three, they got declared dead. In the timeline, uh, but they will tell you all of your families that you're still alive, and they wanted you to know you're not alone. You know we'll we'll do everything we can to help to get you home. And this is this is the beginning of how you know how they pivot the show towards a, a solution, and that is now Starfleet knows Voyager is out there, and they can actually start to do things to try and assist them in getting home. So they're no longer just trying to get home on their own. If Starfleet can do anything, they will. And as we will, you know, it's not a big spoiler for me to tell you. As the show goes on, we start to see that happen. There's two continuity things going on here. One, uh, one of this show's all-time favorite episodes, Eye the Needle, which is where they sent a uh, a message back in time to the... Uh, the Romulan scientist who was working out in a scout ship out in the middle of nowhere, he had made promises that when the time came for Voyager to launch and get lost, that he would relay message back to Starfleet, letting him know it's okay. This is basically hard confirmation at this point that him dying prematurely completely dashed all of those hopes and those notes and that there was no family contingency plan in place to uh, have his relatives relay that. Or Romulan Senate just wasn't having it and they iced that entire thing. Which I... I think the episode itself did a really good job of making you think was probably going to be the case. Yeah. You know, like the way that they played the the crushed hope at the end after Tuvok, you know, tells them, you know, he dies before we even leave. Uh, but yeah, this is definitely hard confirmation that never happened. And also because I'm in a nitpicky mode. End of what was the future's end? Right, yeah. Uh, The one where they go back to 1997... uh, L.A.? L.A.? They send the doctor in with a phaser, and he shoots up everybody in that militia. Right? Yes, that is is true, yes. Like, all of our joking and shit aside about him, like, going lawn suitor and busting people over the head with pipes, like, we just watched John Reese davies get shot with a phaser. It didn't do anything to holograms. Like, he totally could just fucking walk on the bridge with a phaser and just zap all the, the Romulans. Like... I know we're trying to tell a slapstick, funny poison gas episode here, but you know, every time they do stuff like this, it just, it sticks out like a sore thumb that they, you know, all of a sudden he forgets like, Oh yeah. Hey, I'm a, I'm a fucking terminator when push comes to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like he's, he, he buffoons around this ship for 40 minutes trying to find a way to like defeat four Romulans mm-hmm. but yeah in a prior episode well, I he can't basically... kill but like you said we're gonna fucking blow up a whole galaxy class Romulan starship full of people with no fucks to give and any other time I can just shoot people up no big deal yeah I, I like to exhaust all of my options before I just walk on the bridge and shoot people like that's my absolute backup plan 
I knew I knew you could do it, Mark, too. I just wanted to let you be the hero and, and not have to be a <laughs> filthy fucking. <laughs> it would have been something if like, crushing he Terminator again. <laughs> he just shows up to the bridge. Everyone's brains have just been, you know, blasted in. There's a there's a pipe laying on the, you know, like next to the, the Mark one on the captain's mm-hmm. chair. Like, oh, hello, Mark, too. Yeah. I went ahead and solved the problem. You were taking too long. Um, I how'd you feel about the Romulans in this? I think they were a bad choice. I get why they picked them, but they were just so cookie cutter. They could have been any antagonist. Could have been the Maquis. Well, no, at this point, they could not have been the Maquis. I, w- I could have gone for like some space pirates. Like there's, I mean, if you can steal the some Orions, some Orions. Sure. Anything just sweet. I-, I think there's a lot of baggage that comes with the Romulans and, and this wasn't. I don't, you, get, you get what I mean? Like I. It, it feels like a, a one-off what if that would be fine with any other pieces in place, but because you're using such big established names in the Alpha Quadrant, it, you've got some lasting repercussions that I don't think it was Especially because really... they're at war and they just stole a warship. Yeah. yeah. The fact that this doesn't get mentioned later in DS9 is a bit of a miss, but that's a fine. It's an interesting episode in that it's it's a variety show almost. It's got a little bit of everything. It's got interpersonal drama and conflict. It's got high stakes. It's got long reaching, you know, plot, you know, moving back into the Alpha Quadrant and getting a real cool look at what's going on over there. It's got buckets and buckets of humor. It's got grotesque burns and dead people all over the place. Uh, I think the whole thing comes off pretty well, though. And again, for being a high stakes episode for Voyager, it ends on a very, very strong note. And I really enjoyed watching this one. Yeah, I enjoyed it, too. And I think that the MVP of the episode was the strong sense of continuity, both in Trek in general and Voyager itself, that they tried to build into a lot of what they did. So uh, they... They did a lot of the small stuff right in this episode, which they rarely do. Yes, I think is the real MVP in all of this is the fact that they create this cockamamie situation without ramrodding a single thing like that's that's the big uh, the big magic trick in all of this Um, that they got a performance out of Andy Dick. That was not terrible. (laughs) But what are we watching next week, Peter? Hopefully it will also not be terrible. We're going to move into season four, episode 15, Hunters. And the uh, Netflix screenshot has a dude who looks like a bad guy out of doom. (laughs) He's got like this Bane mask and he's in a dark room saying, you know, you merely adapted to the Delta Quadrant, but I was warning it. Voyager starts to receive news from home, both good and bad. It also encounters the Herogens, who only live to hunt and have their sights on Voyager. Uh, that sounds cool. I Before we wrap on this and, and talk about Hunters, I don't want to underplay the end of, of Message in a Bottle. Uh, I think Kate Mulgrew's reaction when the doctor comes over and says, you're not alone, uh, is, is a real emotional swell. Uh, I felt it watching it on her face. And and I think Chakotay might've been in that scene too, but just the huge payoff that after four years and 13 episodes that Voyager actually has some real good news on the books for once. Um, 
was a huge payoff. And we just got done with episodes where she was confronting her biggest fear is that she took too long to get everyone home. They died, that she feels responsible for their situation. And here we are. The very first time that they've taken a solid step towards letting, you know, Starfleet, the Federation, and their families know they're still alive, they're still out there, and they're still trying to get help. Like, what a psychological relief that would be for someone in that position. And yeah, she did a good job of having that expression and, and wearing that in a, in a way that felt authentic. Um, and I feel like they use this avenue the right amount. Uh, it is not from this point forward, the idea of them being able to communicate or deal or get assistance from the Alpha Quadrant, I don't think is overplayed. It is used sparingly enough that as they, you know, as the show goes on and reaches further and further closer to the end, you know, things change a bit and, and I don't want to spoil anything about it, but they don't overdo it. Right. It's still it's still this kind of like distant connection that they have. And this next episode, obviously, is a big deal because it's the the return. It's basically a sequel, uh, quite frankly. Uh, And then from there, I think that they do the they do the right amount of playing with this idea and the pitfalls and, you know, of trying to make it work and all of that. And then they build some interesting stories that actually take place primarily in the Alpha Quadrant as a consequence and I'm happy to say that it gets us some familiar faces back into the mix that I think you'll enjoy seeing Seska. Well, no pass rip (laughs) (laughs) Seska or bus man. Uh, so hunters, any thoughts, any, any, any fond memories, any, any butthole clenching I should do in anticipation. The Herosian are hilarious. I think their idea is good, but the first time they have them on screen, they overdid what they decided to do with them. You'll see what I mean. It's pretty laughable, but uh, eventually we we get some fun Herosian content. There's a two-parter in this season that they're factoring too heavily that I think is just a great bit of sci-fi storytelling. It's just bonkers, and I I really like it. I, I, uh, I look forward to getting there. I'll tell you what, man, uh, it's about time that this season starts pulling its head out of its ass. We had a real ugly bit there following year of hell with fucking Leonardo da Vinci's cartoon adventure. So between <laughs> Mortal Coil and this, uh, I'm, I'm getting some much needed resuscitation. Yeah, early part of fourth season was rough, but I'm happy to say from this point forward, it's actually really good. You know, you've and said that before, Joe. We've just fallen flat on our face. So, so keep your it, predictions. It really is. Keep your predictions it's to good. yourself. You're just you're jinxing us. All right, no, man. no, believe believe me. You can believe me. You can trust me. It's I don't, okay. I don't trust lower me. your shields. Lower lower your de- lower your guard. <laughs> don't send any. Don't send any uh, uh, declarations in. Don't don't worry about that. You mm-hmm. know. Yeah, this is a nice, friendly uh, cannonball run through the you Delta know, Quadrant. That's possible. all. Yeah. That's Happy all. birthday. <laughs> all right, Thank you for uh, listening to Vija. Please hateful voyage to the Delta Quadrant. We'll see you next week. All right, man.